Bertolucci. <laughs> a lot to, of that emphasis on yeah, Bertolucci. Yes. Bertolucci. Well, get the thumbs up for me, and so um, we're going to start cool. the Scottish Way podcast. And with me today is Ewan Morrison. Thanks for coming along, Ewan. Hello, Alistair. Um, the way you normally do this is I have lots of notes and kind of we'll go through um, different things that you've done, but having had conversations with you previously, this could go in any direction. So I think that's the best thing to do is just start and see what happens. Um, so I think the best place to start is at the end, so to speak, or at least what's happening yeah. at the moment. Uh, Tales from the Mall is your latest book. Um, I think fair to say broadly critically very well received. Mm-hmm. Um, now that it's out and about, uh, what are your feelings about Tales from the Mall? Um, I still, well, I've been, let's start that again. Um, I'm very pleased with the way it's turned out. Mm-hmm. I'm very pleased with it as a working method, uh, the, the way that I arrived at that. Uh, making the book was to not see it as a book. Mm-hmm. Um, the book is a byproduct of three and a half years of research. Um, it's an app, it's a design phenomena, it's um, potentially a TV series, yeah. it's, it's a series of short films. But most importantly, it's, it's just a, it's an ongoing exploration of a bunch of concerns um, across a, a range of different forums. And I think that that's the way that I'm going to keep working. Not thinking about, you know, a book. Yeah. Say. I like the idea that a book is, is a sort of natural byproduct of a process of investigation rather than, um, you know, thinking of a book as product, as beginning, sealed. Middle yeah, beginning, middle end. I'm also getting a bit weary of conventional no- novel narrative structure mm-hmm. as well and, and the whole question of central protagonists and, and characters. I'm more interested in in the way society shapes us as people than I am in, in telling the story of a of a protagonist. Well, we should say a bit about what exactly Tales from the Mall is. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that people listening to this will know, but of course many won't. Um, it's a collection of tales, some fiction, some... I mean, how true do you... They were based on uh, interviews that you did with people who worked Yeah, on... I see them as, as tales retold, so therefore yeah. they are stories that were told to me by people who work in shopping malls. Now, by the time I get to them, they've been retold and retold already. They've become uh, the folklore of the yeah, shopping mall. the urban myth. The urban myth. But urban myth not pumped up for the sake of telling a guy who's asking questions, but just because these are the stories that people tell each other. And anyone sure. that's ever been working in a tough job, you know, an anonymous job, the anecdotes and the pranks... Get you through the day. And the stories that you tell yourself, you know, are, are the things that get you through the day. So so I've just taken those and told them in the simplest language possible. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't question whether they're true. Sometimes they seem slightly exaggerated. It was just the way that the stories were told to me. Um, and I think it captured something of that kind of vitality of of um, of of these... Uh, of this form of the kind of lost or secret form of storytelling, the mm-hmm. not professional storytelling, but like no. you know the working man's story. It's a kind of oral tradition, isn't it? Yeah. That that's how these things become embellished. Um, I mean, I've worked with people where someone you know lost ten pounds, and by the end of the day, they've lost one hundred and fifty quid. You know, it's, it just goes through these kind of kind of Chinese whispers. The structure of the book, it seems to me, you didn't set out to. This is definitely how I'm going to do it. Did it become well, I've written a few 
um, short stories, and I have these uh, myths, if you like, and I also have some uh, factual information I want to get across. And how did you decide that you're going to bring all these together? Did you just say, so I'm just going to, you know, try and do this? What? I kind of started off from a different footing than previous books that I've written. Previous books were always kind of coming from inside me and, and digging deep into what that was. Mm -hmm. Here I really wanted to do something which was, which was going out into the world and finding out facts. So I actually started off just trying to write a bunch of short stories and then I realised I didn't know some basic things like why are shopping malls called malls? Mm -hmm. So, so like I studied the etymology of the word mal and I found out that it came from a game in the 16th century based on croquet. Absurd. <laughs> so I just thought that is just too good not not to keep in its in its own form. And just as I was going through, all these questions sort of just arose as I was trying to write stories about people in shopping malls. Like, mm -hmm. how do shopping malls proliferate? You know, are there some, is there some evil capitalist conspiracy or, you know... I, it actually turns out that shopping malls were, first of all, designed by a utopian socialist. Yeah, which you know, was fascinating. Vic Victor Grun, um, an Austrian Jew escaping from the Nazis, he was horrified at suburban sprawl in America and wanted to build malls as a, as a centralising force to stop the atomization of American suburban life and to bring people into communities. Mm -hmm. And he ended up horrified... Um, you know, after 50 years, that, that his plan had, had become this monster that had taken over the yeah. world and increased atomization. So things like that, I just I just thought, I love that story so much, I'm putting it at the start of the yeah. book. And also it does sort of set a kind of template for what's going on in the book, which is that sometimes the best intentions in the world end up creating disasters, there are unintended consequences. Also throughout the book, I discovered when I was hearing anecdotes that people told me, there are strange unexpected consequences of the fact that shopping malls are taking over our city centres. The strange behaviours that cluster around that, be it suicide or transvestitism or people dropping their kids off in the mall because they've got no childcare. Yeah. Um, so or exercising in the malls. Or, or yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the mall walkers of the United States, um, who are generally geriatrics who, who walk around malls to keep fit. And they really piss off the people that own the malls because they steal the best parking spaces. <laughs> and they're aggressive. They, they bump into people and they never buy a damn thing. Um, and that's started happening in, in, uh, in, in Glasgow, of all places. Anyway, to cut a long story short, basically, I thought um, the learning that's involved mm -hmm. in this book, rather than just keep that as research that will then fuel you know, a conventional narrative. I'll just tell it in the simplest form possible. I'll keep factual sections separate so mm -hmm. I don't have to squeeze it into the mouth of protagonists. You know, for example, if it, if it was Jonathan Franzen, I'd have a sit-down scene where some people talked about the infrastructure of shopping malls and how they've taken over the world as they drank coffee. Yeah. And every 10 lines, you'd have to have a little thing to remind you that they were still drinking coffee. <laughs> you know. So I just thought, no, let's just keep the damn thing separate and mm -hmm. I'll work out what the structure is afterwards. Yeah. Um, but it was just being sort of obsessed with finding out the truth about things and then realising actually you can just tell the truth and the fascinating facts separately from your fictions. Yeah. Um, so it, it's a kind of three-prong hybrid. That's right, yeah. You know, there's, there's the facts, there's the tales retold, and then there's the fictions. Um, and they just found their own form. And they found their own form through the structure of a mall, uh, shopping mall map. Yeah. So you can orientate yourself around the book with 
with the mall map and it's even more it makes even more sense when you have the app yeah which i've seen and it's fantastically um easy to use and just i mean it's an elegant app i have to say it's a i I mean hats off to craig lament i think for uh putting these things together but it does take it keeps the structure of the book but it, it seems made for iPad or whatever, you know. What you, you know, I think one. we should take Craig's mall map and actually start selling it to real shopping malls. <laughs> because usually mall maps are really irritating. You, if only you could actually get one and you could touch on screen the shop that you wanted to go to and it would show you how to get there. Which is kind of what we got yeah. with the stories. You touch, you know, the mall map and it'll take you to the right story. Um, uh, generally, people get baffled by uh, mall mall. Uh, Signs, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mall signs. In fact, I've come across quite a few where there's not even a "you are here" button. I know. Now, I was somewhere the other day. I can't remember where, but that was exactly the same thing. I went right. I can see that this is a map, but where am I? I have no idea. Yeah, it's the deliberate disorient- disorientation. <laughs> yeah. that's manufactured the problem is when you read Ewan's book, it's like you suddenly see all these things absolutely everywhere you go, and you start to look at your own shopping behaviour, and you and it's uh, it can be quite uh, an eye opener as well. Um, so, it seems to me from what you said about you're not you're moving away from the idea of being interested in a you know plot and central hero and, and, and fiction that perhaps and from what you've been looking at recently um, you're maybe moving more towards more factual putting out more factual information maybe rather than yeah, fiction yeah yeah well I think I think I think that we live at a really crucial turning point um, it's almost a turning point in political history. Writing novels almost seems a bit like, you know, playing the fiddle as Rome burns. Mm. Um, I get a strong sense that, that I should be being more politicised and I should be doing more learning and finding out what, how things work and what can be done. Um, also, you know, the financial basis behind being a creative person is, is, is uh, collapsing yeah. these days across many different forms, music, in film, and in books so you know I think a lot of authors are actually facing the choice where they're thinking well will I just keep on believing in myself and I'll turn out another book on my credit card or 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 will I do something else and and that's something else for me is is uh, is getting more politicized becoming more vocal more visible mm-hmm. having more of a public face as a speaker as someone who challenges ideas and I, I really enjoy that kind of public confrontation often find myself shouting at people in audiences which is great <laughs> It gets it off my chest, um, and then strangely enough, they invite me back. Yeah, um, because they enjoy it as well. It's just, <laughs> yeah, well, it, it just goes to show that the idea of public debate is not is not dead. Um, so I think that's one expanding role for the author. You know, people like Will Self have been doing this for years. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's got a horrible horrible derogatory term, which is pundit. Right. Um, you know, spokesperson uh, or 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 uh, think yeah. thinker. It's thinker, horrible. Yeah, 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 exactly. Do you think critic sounds too negative? Um, but certainly to just uh, be to just accept that I'm absorbed by uh, these ideas about how the world works, and and to rather than trying to sort of go away, run away, and form some perfect object mm-hmm. out of those ideas, just to explore those ideas with other people, put them into the public arena. It's much more captivating um, for me at the moment than, yeah. than the idea of sitting in a dark room and bashing at another book. Yeah. Um, you did a, a talk, at, I think it was Edinburgh, you did it first, The Death of the Book. I thought that was, that was interesting to take that idea and take it to Edinburgh. Um, and it was part of the Guardian debate. 
we'll expand a little bit on that and we'll kind of a, a talk about uh, perhaps how other people have reacted to this idea. Well, that was the interesting one because I was reluctantly roped into it. Right. I didn't want to be the author who had to, you know, give a talk on, on the end of books and our, our, our author is dying. Um, basically, the whole thing is about the internet. Mm-hmm. The damaging effect that the internet's had on the publishing industry. They wanted me to frame the debate in terms of, is the paper book dying? Yeah. I'm not so particularly concerned about the paper book as artifact. And what I'm concerned about is... Um, the writer. Well, it's the fact that writers are, are, are losing their livelihood. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and I, I, I intended to spend about two days working on the essay. It took a month of research <laughs> to do two hours worth of material to get honed down to 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, but it, as a result of that talk, I've pluralized that into about eight different PowerPoint presentations with stats and facts, just about the very damaging effect that the internet has had on the creative industries. Um, for example, if you look at the music industry, you know, it's down from 14.6 billion a decade ago to 6.8. Um, young musicians these days are really struggling to keep going oh. for more than a few years yeah. because they're just not getting those deals. That that mainstream support has, has just it's vanished. Awful. It's always become yeah. the equivalent of the gap year. It's like, well, I've done my university. Before I get a job, I'll have a shot at becoming a, uni- a, a musician. A musician. Uh, or a writer or something, yeah. and then I'll get a real job. Because the idea that I, I get music sent to the site, whole yeah. albums worth, and you think, don't yeah. give me this for nothing. But that's the way that people are now thinking, that the only way to get out there is the same things. Well, that's the thing, because the internet does tend, you know, I, I, I dug into the the, the the internet gurus like like uh, Lawrence Lessig and Chris Anderson, mm. these these people and, and Chris Anderson's philosophy is that every art form um, that goes digital will eventually become free. Yeah. This is just the trajectory of the internet, um, that it's it's hard to monetize cultural content on the internet. And then I was sort of digging in deeper into, into, into how this has come about and the legislation, you know, becoming quite politically knowledgeable mm-hmm. about this stuff. Stuff that seems quite boring, I think, yeah. <laughs> to most people. I can rabbit on about a piece of legislation that Bill Clinton brought in. But really, it was a huge piece of legislation because Bill Clinton was bullied by the emerging internet industries to create some, some laws which meant that if you or I upload copyright uh, material, if we become pirates and we post it on YouTube mm-hmm. or whatever, if the original maker of that material wants... Uh, to sue someone, they can only sue you, the individual. They can't sue Google or YouTube or whoever put it up there in the first place. So, so you, the individual, who, so who watches it? You, the individual, you, the little pirate that put it up. Oh, right, the pirate. So if there up. are a million pirates posting mm-hmm. stuff all the time and Warner Brothers trying to tr- track them all down and sue them, occasionally it hits one of them for 15 grand or 20 grand, whatever. Yeah. But what it can't do is sue the corporation that facilitates that piracy in the first place. So, I mean, basically, when you look at YouTube, 75% of the content is illegal. Yeah. And it's rated at 13.6 billion. Right. That's a huge... 75% of that industry just should not be there. So, anyway, I'm involved in, in the advocacy of, of uh, some very controversial stuff like like uh, protecting copyright, uh, which people might see as very right-wing. <laughs> I'm pro-SOPA. I'm anti-piracy. Um, I... I uh, doing a, a sort of political fight to try to challenge notions of internet freedom yeah. and freedom of expression through piracy. 
Um, I think that even though the economy is going to hell, we still have to protect um, the rights for artists to be reimbursed. I couldn't agree more. For their, for their efforts. Uh, to, to create a great album takes a long time. To yeah. write a good book takes a long time. I suppose the opposing argument to that is that you will get, well, I was watching um, a programme on post-punk and you know you had small record companies when there was no money and there were basically everyone was putting the singles in the sleeve themselves and you know designing the covers and all that and you take back, we don't want to get too arsy about it, the means of production and you get it out Which there. Which is Steve Albini and Sub Pop and yeah. all, that, all that kind of stuff. Um, Steve Albini's a dinosaur now, though. And mm. So that is not going to happen this time. They're, you know, uh, they're not going to be... Well, I think that there are small record companies, and you know there are small publishers who are um, trying to do just that, to get uh, you know, books or records or whatever out there, um, probably without any chance of really making any money, but still there's a... I keep thinking about factory records... And you get, when at the beginning of Factory Records, where it really was a case of um, a few bands who Tony Wilson liked, and he put them out there, and then by the end, of course, they were paying, you know, £100,000 for a desk, because, you know, it was designed by Ben Kelly or something mad like that. But yeah. uh, at the beginning, there, I just wonder whether that will happen, or whether you think... That no, that period's over. That, yeah. was, that was the great period where, on the back of the mainstream cultural stuff mm -hmm. which is you know your Michael Jackson's and all mm -hmm. the rest of it your bat out of hell yeah. um, your stuff that sells you know one copy to everyone yeah. in the entire nation you had enough money creeping out of that industry and that infrastructure to support the indies indie then meant independent yeah, re re record yeah. labels yeah. independent record labels have shrunk down to almost nothing for, for many reasons I won't go into here mm. Indies is now a name that, that is, is used to describe solitary sort of soul trading individuals yeah I know I know. so you've gone from a system where you had records you know record labels like Sub Pop you had five or six bands constantly touring supporting each other sharing kit mm -hmm. sharing studio time recording time to this solitary musician trying to sell their ass on the internet mm -hmm. that's what indie means now um, and that is that's a fairly desperate set of circumstances. You know, you've, it's you plus everyone else who's got access to all of the software to produce their own single. Yeah. Also within this is 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 the death of the album. Yeah, albums were one thing that really that really you know supported the indie. Uh, the indie yeah, because people would still indie pay record five labels. six pounds for a vinyl and yeah, 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 you know, our generation, you know, mm. we proudly proclaim us being Gen Xers, both yeah. of us. Um, that you know, one of the things we shout at Gen Y is like, "Fuck you!" You know, we pay for our music. <laughs> you know, and and also we used to pay top dollar because we loved we loved this stuff and we knew that if we didn't pay for it, it wouldn't get made. And you know, so for example, St Steve Albini. Mm. Um, probably one of the biggest indie well the biggest indie producer yeah in America he's you know he's a classic example of someone he did the mainstream stuff that paid his rent so that he could now who did he do mainstream stuff he did he did all all the greats he did uh, you know Pixies Nirvana mm -hmm. he did Slint um, but he was in, in the Smashing Pumpkins uh, but he also did even more mainstream stuff and yeah. that allowed him to subsidise the bands that he Big loved Pumpkin. yeah 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 yeah, and, and, and he even said, you know, if if Slint had come to me with their second album, I would have done it for free, mm -hmm. you know, because he would have made money doing the other stuff. So, yeah. the, you know, there was the correlation between working in the mainstream and feeding it into indie record label stuff. Um, 
we're just not seeing that anymore. Yeah, that's not the way that the music industry works. I suppose the difference is back then, as you say, you were still paying for a physical item, but now there's the expectation. Certainly, it seems that it will be free, and the only way that people will, so I'm told, make money is by you know selling t-shirts, selling badges, getting some kind of cut on the door. Apparently now some uh, people, if they're playing at a big enough venue, take a cut of the car park, which I think is phenomenal. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, yeah. you know, the, the last yeah. thing they do is actually say, "Well, you know, here's a gold disc for record sales," because the chances are you're not really going to make any records. Well, I mean, it pushes bands towards live music. You know, that's mm -hmm. the only, that's the only thing they can do. But it's also a double bind though, as well, because if al if bands aren't making albums then it's pretty hard for them to do an entire set. Mm -hmm. um, That's very true. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, my main concern there, you know, across the creative industries, another one that's dying as well is pornography. Mm -hmm. um, just because you can get it all for free now. People might not be so sympathetic to the idea that porn stars are not making a living anymore. <laughs> but I still think it's part of a kind of general, general culture. It was decline. always said that, you know, where porn went, mainstream culture would follow, you know, whether it was the use of video or whatever. Yeah, no, it was the second biggest industry in the world after arms sales for a while. <laughs> Aren't we a wonderful <laughs> race? <laughs> but it, it, so, and I didn't watch the program, but I think Louis threw went back and visited, you know, uh, San Fernando Valley or whatever, and saw that these people were, you know, struggling in more ways than one. Anyway, that's all the negative stuff. That, yeah. was, that was the first essay. Mm -hmm. I'm working through a series of essays all about the digital world and what can be done about it to try and salvage creativity from it. And I do think that the digital industries are a bubble which which is going to burst at some point. Yeah. Now, what that means though is, in terms of artistic practice, it's going to be very hard to get people to start paying money for culture again. Mm -hmm. Try to get people who've been raised on getting their music for free for 10 years to start paying for music. Maybe it means that we just have to go to more localised notions of what culture is, so we have our local events. We try to support independent record labels, yeah. as you say, because we know they're good. We give up on the mainstream stuff, ideally, mm -hmm. as its quality goes down and down and down because it's basically reproducing the same stuff for you know um, for less and re less and less returns because it's having to deal with piracy all the time. Yeah. Um, so a kind of localized economy in terms of cultural production might be. The answer. It's not an ambitious, great or glorious solution to the problem, but it might mean that we can actually support our local artists. Well, it brings to the idea of the problems, not just in publishing books, but in selling books. I mean, apparently the last great uh, high street bookstore is probably Waterstones and it's nearly on its knees. Yeah. And it's now done a deal with Amazon, so I believe, yeah. mm -hmm. well, Amazon as I believe they're calling it. Um, where basically it becomes a shop front for uh, for us yeah. and a kind of storehouse and yeah. so eventually and I think HMV it seems is heading the same way. Mm -hmm. Perhaps the the the, the um, independent bookshop stores record stores will see an upsurge as people will have nowhere else to go to get. I think things only have to get worse before they get better. Yeah. I think we're going to enter a, a kind of cultural dark age when the big monopolies like Amazon just destroy all competition. Yeah, there's nothing there to stop them. There's n it's very hard to rein in a multinational corporation. And uh, what 
really needs to be done is for lots of different countries in the world to set up price protection um, on products, on cultural products, and in their own individual companies to take Amazon to the Monopolies Commission. Mm -hmm. It's a huge project yeah. to be going on with. Um, but really, if, if, if one looks at the consequences of where things are going, the race to the bottom in terms of prices for cultural products on, on Amazon, we see that, that it really is, it's, it's what's called a loss leader strategy. Yeah. Since Amazon sell 800 other products which are not cultural, they can take a hit on cultural stuff just to put their competitors out of business. And one thing I'm always trying to communicate to people is the old mainstream model was a mainstream publisher was based on the idea that you'd have 10 authors, you sold 5 million books each. Yeah. 10 great authors, and you'd support the ones who weren't doing so well mm -hmm. within the back of that. The Amazon model is to have 5 million authors, you sell 10 books each. Um, they still make the same amount of money. Yeah. But there's a difference between making 10 books selling 10 books as an author and selling 5 million. Of course, yeah. Um, it's the middle that's dying within that, though, because we can't all sell 5 million yeah. books. Um, but and the middle, but we back to bands like, you know, independent yeah. record label stuff, is where the, the influential and, you know, for want of a better word, interesting, yeah. but, the, you know, the different stuff lived, wasn't it? Well, it was, it was where it was bred. Yeah. It was like the hothouse. Um, what's called the mid-listers, for mm -hmm. example, the mid-listers in, in terms of bands in terms of, of books. You know, there's, there's some great mid-list authors who were supported by the mainstream over 10, 15 years yeah. when they weren't making hits, but the mainstream infrastructure protected them and kept giving them a you know, yearly salary just to keep writing. Uh, people like Philip Roth, yeah. you know, Pulitzer Prize winner, Angela Carter. You know, these were people who, who uh, you know, if they had to survive in, in our contemporary world where you're where you're having to self-promote yourself on the internet as a self-published author. I don't think these people would have had the time or the effort or the energy or the self-belief to continue. Mm -hmm. it, it would just not be possible. So I think that's what we're looking at now is a kind of short-term um, creative investment from people. How long can you self-fund yourself and self-promote yourself on the internet before you give up? And even if you do give up, there might be other people who are going to jump in there, another 10,000 people who'll sell 10 books yeah. or 100 books. And Amazon's still making its money because there's 5 million of you trying to do that. Yeah. So I think we just have to get our heads around the fact that the economic model shifted towards what's called the long tail mm -hmm. in economics. It's making money out of a lot of amateurs selling a few things. The more of them you get to do that, that's how you make the money. And you can make more money from that than you can from the old mainstream model. So what we were talking about earlier on, uh, and I think it moves on to this, is the importance or otherwise of the perceived importance of social media in getting sales or or in, in the life of an artist now, if you, if you want. You know, bands are all... Uh, are, well, I think MySpace seems to almost be dead space now. Yeah. Um, I, but Facebook and Twitter, you've got to be on, you've got to be telling people your stuff. But what you were saying is that there is no... Uh, Evidence that say this yeah. is actually making mm. a damn bit of difference. Well, just to sort of backtrack on that a little bit, there's a fantastic bit of um, information which you can find on a, a site called Information is Beautiful, which is about the difference between um, uh, CD sales mm -hmm. um, and uh, sales on Spotify. Right. So if you're uh, an American musician and you want to uh, earn the American minimum wage, either you can sell 
um, 100 hand-pressed CDs for $8.99 a month on the street. Mm -hmm. That's just, well, that's tw 25 a week. Right. Or you can have 5,487,000 hits on Spotify, <laughs> on Spotify. To, make the, <laughs> to make the same amount of money. Now, how many people are going to get 5 million hits on Spotify? I'd rather be out on the street yeah. with my hand-pressed CDs. Um, sorry to go back to your question, which was about social media. Um, I think we've been sold a, a big fib right. with social media. Again, to try to look at the world the other way around. We've been told for the last five years, you can be a millionaire by selling your books on Kindle. Mm -hmm. Now, I've seen press releases from Amazon that have turned into news articles. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're almost verbatim. This is basically corporate hype that's become news and has been considered as factual. Um, there's absolutely no evidence that that that, um, that people can uh, make a living from selling their books. There's there are 80 known cases in the world of people who sell more than 800 books a month through, through 80 through self e-publishing. That comes from Amazon's own internal mm -hmm. statistics or people who that's people who who post this information on Amazon. Now the thing is self-published authors do tend to talk about how much they sell. Yeah. There's not very many of them out there who are going to hide those statistics. <laughs> figures, yeah. But we have, generally in the media, we've heard about 15 of these people. Yeah. Um, and we hear about them again and again and again and again. Now, when they're selling, but the thing is, when they're selling their 100,000 copies, they're selling them for 99 pence or 49 pence. And that in no way corresponds to the kind of high that we saw in the mainstream where mainstream authors were selling books, hardbacks, mm -hmm. at, at, you know, Ten ninety nine, eleven ninety nine, forty nine, you know, fourteen ninety nine. Yeah. Um, now my main thing is not about authors getting rich. It's the no. fact that publishing houses used to spread the money that came from those at the top across a range of other artists. And what you don't see with the autonomous, self-seeking, self-publishing indie author is any spread of the wealth yeah. from what they're making towards other writers. So really we're seeing the collapse of a cultural institution. Yeah. Which is why we should support the idea of publishing, which is why I will not self-publish. I'd rather mm -hmm. be with someone like Cargo mm -hmm. in Glasgow, a small, independent, very proactive publishing house, because we share the successes and failures yeah. of other writers together because we're in the same game yeah ultimately um anyway sorry back to the notion of <laughs> of, of the uh, of uh, social media so what i've seen over the last few years is is such a lot of propaganda that tells us that the way we can sell ourselves and promote ourselves is getting more tweets more followers mm -hmm. spending more time on facebook there are advocates of this that say the best way to self-promote yourself as an author or a musician is to spend 20% of your time yeah. ma making the work and 80% of your time um, um, self-promoting. Yeah. And then they say, but even when you're self-promoting on Facebook and Twitter, don't hit it on the nose all the time. Spend 20% of your time doing the hard sell and 80% of the time talking about cats and hobbies and your <laughs> socializing, music, all the rest of it. Oh, so I worked this out. That actually, if you're a self-published author mm -hmm. and you work with this 80-20 rule, so 20% of your time and then blah, 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 down the line, um, if you work for three hours a day 
at the end of that time with these numbers, you can have nine days a year to actually do any writing. The rest <laughs> of the time is going to be spent bloody Twittering yeah. and Facebooking and hiding the fact that you're self-promoting by talking about other things. Yeah. And, and getting, by the way, do I have... Okay, oh, and it? hey, I just had a great review from my short story I gave away for free in the hope that I would get more tweets. Yeah. Um, so it's an entire industry based on social media generating more social media. There's no actual substantial evidence that I've come across, and I've asked a lot of people about this, that there's anything more than between 2 and 25% chance of selling anything through social media. So what you might get is a kind of immediate response where someone says to you, oh, I've just read uh, Tales from the Mall and I absolutely love it. And you might get a little shot and go, oh, that's great, somebody really liked it. But there's no, they pro probably, those people would probably have bought the book anyway. Um, yeah, well... If, uh, the difference is now that they are able to, I mean, I suppose they could go and look at your email and but now there is a more immediate... So you've got a, a, a connection perhaps with your readership that you might not have had before, but it's still the readership that might have been there anyway. Well... You know, there's the 200 books barrier. Mm -hmm. It's basically all the people you know yeah. and all the friends of friends and your granny and and uh, and social media no longer extends very much beyond... Well, social media, exactly, exactly. The that. 200 yeah, thing, yeah. because you've got the Facebook bubble. You know, you've got your, your best selected friends, which are the ones you keep seeing endlessly again mm -hmm. and again and again. So there's this illusion that the internet is bringing you to the globe, yeah. you know, the mass audience out there. You're talking to the same people again and again and again and um, 90 percent of tweets are never retweeted yeah so we have to ask ourselves what is the purpose of all this activity mm -hmm. and it's the answer is very simple it's to raise the stock value of the social media corporations they say we have 900 million followers therefore we say that we can monetize this content to a certain degree and we've seen this with facebook the barefaced lies about the possibility of monetizing yeah um, the vast drop in share prices as people realise that actually Facebook's not very good for selling anything. Well, exactly. I mean, how, how often do you even read an advert on Facebook and then, you know, actually use it to... Well, how often do people even read articles on Facebook well, that's anymore? that's true, that's true. Um, they see a, nice, a picture of something nice and they go, I like, and that's it. Move on to the next thing. It's something Malcolm Gladwell talked about about the internet. He said, he said that it, it, it creates um, shallow connection. Excuse me, it creates shallow connections or, or, or short connections. Um, social media is not very good at getting us to do stuff. <clears throat> it can help facilitate social groups yeah. to get organised politically. Mm -hmm. Social groups are already existent, yeah. it has to be said, um, can bring them together. Um, but what's not very good is motivating individual, isolated consumers to click, I'll buy that. Or, yeah or I'll go and do that thing. Um, it's, all, you know, it's, it's only really good at sort of collating and, and encouraging people to do what they normally do already. I do wonder, uh, I wonder you know, with people spending all this time, as you say, um, having to think about what they're going to tweet and how, many, how much time they should be doing it, and then you know, people clicking that they like an article, one, whether they actually ever read the article, or two, whether they actually ever read the book. Um, okay, they're not going to buy the book and not read it, but... Uh, they might say, well, I like this page, which is about the book, and actually you'll never see. I mean, I'm sure you'll have seen, oh, yeah, likes, however many. Yeah, sales. yeah, yeah, yeah. Something's gone on, you know, gone wrong here. Well, some of the interesting stats, there's very few actual stats on, on the real sale-through capability of social media. There was a great example of a guy on Twitter who owned a pizzeria in Chicago, and he 
put out stuff, jokes, humorous, pictures of his cat, pictures of his favourite toppings, um, you know, him talking into his webcam about his pizzas and all the rest of it. He generated 70,000 new followers. Mm -hmm. And he did his own market research when people came to his store. And he discovered that not a single person um, had actually um, responded to any of the social media. And that wasn't why they came for the pizzas. It was just because he was local. <laughs> you know, so he wasted all this time. 70,000 um, followers, Twitter followers, hadn't actually resulted in in any new sales. Of course, we can say pizzas are, are a different matter from books. Um, but um, we haven't seen any real statistical yeah. analysis on, on the differences, the similarities. There's no real proof that social media um, actually functions. Right, great. We're back after a beer break. And um, I think the last question I asked you before we stopped was... Uh, were you interested in, in this before you started Tales from the Mall or is this something that has resulted from uh, you writing Tales from the Mall? Well, Tales from the Mall inevitably led me to ask questions about, uh, bloody hell, you know, the history of consumerism. I decided I couldn't actually really talk about how people are influenced and affected, you know, the question of are we free in the free, in the free market if I didn't have a good understanding of of, of the spread of American capitalism. Yeah. So there's probably, I think, only about 20 pages, really, which mm. basically deal, on, you know, through the growth of of the mall yeah. um, as metaphor for the rise of American consumerism. But you said that um, you, you'd been researching a, the book for three years? Yeah. Because I remember going on your website quite a while ago and seeing these little video clips and going, what's he up to now? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, but um, so... This was a, a, a huge amount of research for, but you know, it was necessary for, to, for the understanding of what you were going to write. In the well, just, I think what was really interesting was just seeing the way that American supremacy has come into effect. Mm -hmm. Sometimes through military power, sometimes through the influence of government legislation. Um, the, the whole, you know, to look at capitalism in America as a microcosm of what's happened to the rest of the world mm -hmm. basically deregulated markets where investors get carte blanche to to you know to develop sites to take over private space yeah and that's basically what's it it was done in America and now it's spread through the rest of the world mm -hmm. so our town centers are now you know the malls in our town centers are now owned by multinational conglomerates mm -hmm. large chunk of Glasgow is owned by an Australian corporation um, through its shopping malls. Um, two of our biggest shopping malls are owned by Australian-American conglomerates. Um, just that whole notion that we didn't quite realise what we yeah, were doing when we, when we sold off our space, but it was actually, it was, it was a, a, a deliberate strategy by the emerging neocon since the 1990s. Right, so does this go back pre-1990s? Because I'm thinking of the first mall I ever went to shopping centre, whatever, was the plaza in East Kilbride, remember going there with my yep. parents. And um, it seemed to me a lot of the new towns, Cumbernauld and East Kilbride in particular, were built around these yep. Uh, yep. Uh, places to shop. And then when they failed, Cumbernauld failed very, very quickly. Yep. 
then it just, you know, almost everything died around it. Your whole town it? collapses. Well, you see, the interesting thing is, is that those were shopping centres. The distinction between a shopping mm. centre and a shopping mall is a mall is owned by a conglomerate from somewhere and from somewhere else that's privately owned, and a shopping centre is actually owned by the local council. I was going to say, because I, yeah. I remember East Kilbride, had a, I think there was a library there, and there was... There a library, was a dole office, a post office. Mm -hmm. That's right. East Kilbride is one of the most fascinating examples of that, because in the oldest part of the East Kilbride shopping centre, you've got about 30% of the stores are shut down. Yeah. They're not actually custom built for modern capitalist um, companies, you know, uh, Gap, um, H&M, sorry, H&M, mm. um, Victoria's Secret, all the, you know, the units are too small, they're based on sort of the notion of local shops, whatever. Um, but East Kilbride survived because it's redeveloped. It's got about four, diff four different redevelopments within it yeah. um, to try to keep that place alive. It almost seemed to build over its old self. I mean, you've got yeah. the Debenhams and the kind of jewellery shops and at one end, uh, it, you can walk through it. and It's almost like a history of East yeah. Kilbride shopping as you move through it. Well, it's, it's also a history of capitalism in Britain, you know, over the last over the last 40 years because really the, the whole notion of having a, sh a civic shopping centre mm -hmm. at the heart of your new town is really a socialist utopian idea. Yeah. Um, some of the interesting things that you could do in a shopping centre you're not allowed to do in a mall like bring in food of your own making yeah. you know sit down and sit down sit which down is something and, I hadn't realised that I read there are no seats in malls. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and loitering in groups of more than six people you know, you get moved on in a mall if you do that because mm. everything's about mobility. You can have buskers, you can bring in pets. Um, you know, places like East Kilbride, Cumbernauld were, were much more civic centres yeah. than, than contemporary shopping malls, which are all just about keeping the flow of consumer traffic going. And, you know, any, anyth anything you do which, which slows down the movement, um, you know, the security folk are going to be on to you to ask, what are you doing? Why aren't you shopping? Mm -hmm. So how did you come to uh, to get back to the, the the fiction? How did you how did did you have did you do the research, do the interviews, and then say right, I'm going to write some fiction around this? Was that how it worked, or no? It was kind of an amorphous thing. So I would write one story and then realise I had to learn some more, and then I'd rewrite the story. All the stories were rewritten about eight times, mm. um, usually by going back to scratch again. And sometimes I realised that which was a great saving grace, I realised that I, I could take the, the overt politics out of the stories yeah. and just be, let the stories be sort of small human vignettes and, 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 uh, and keep the, the politics and the history um, in, in separate factual sections. So everything had to be sort of reworked together. It all sort of yeah. came to the boil in three different pans, if you like, and then eventually got turned into one soup. <laughs> I mean, I think those, in, in a sense, are the more powerful for it because there's an emotional attachment that maybe isn't quite there with with, with the other parts. You know, you you, you realise that this is uh, fiction, and there are heartbreaking moments, and there are laughs, and all of those things. And actually, it makes you it works incredibly well with the other pieces. I'm thinking right now: was is this one of the myths, or is this one of your stories about the guy who mops the floor with the with his own piss with his own piss that's a true story oh, from that's phenomenal I think just explain that one because it's a great tale it's a true story from from uh, from Mal in Glasgow actually and it's about it's about an old guy he's a white guy um, he, um, he works with a bunch of people who are immigrants and he, he's, a, he's a late night cleaner in a shopping mall they've got to mop the, the surfaces polish them all the rest of it and um 
he uh, he's largely sort of excluded and victimized by by um, the security staff. We take the piss out of him because either he's deaf or he's pretended he's deaf, so he doesn't have to put up with all their bullshit. So they play pranks on him all the time. He gets into trouble. He's kicked in the balls by women who, you know, one of the security guards had, had thrown his voice and said, check out the jugs on that. <laughs> the woman ran up to the guy and kicked him in the nuts. Um, anyway, no one was quite sure as to, as to what his past was because he, he, he was covered in tattoos. They yeah. thought maybe he was an ex-con or he'd been in the army. And the fact that he always kept himself to himself. Um, some thought he was an alcoholic or an ex-alcoholic or a junkie. He never socialised with, with the other folk that he was working with. He seemed as a miserable, sad man. Um, and one day um, there was there was a, one of these promotional display things where, where they had Alcopops, which was you were then allowed to promote Alcopops. Um, in, in public places before the government... Before they realised that there was alcohol in them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before they realised the very damaging social consequences for the youth of today. So they had lots of these girls running around in miniskirts, you know, offering samples of of this uh, Alcopop drink. And um, and this, you know, the man who, who I called Beethoven, because Beethoven was deaf, uh, seemed very disturbed by the whole thing, kept his distance. Anyway, the next morning... Um, the top atrium floor of the shopping mall was stinking and it was it was uh, sticky and, and people were feeling nauseous and they didn't know what it was. They thought it was burst pipes or something or maybe there'd been some kind of attack. Yeah. You know, people were freaked out at this point, you know, toxic terrorism and all sure. this kind of bullshit. Sniffer dogs are brought in and all the rest of it. And they looked at the surveillance cameras and um, they found old Beethoven had been, um, had been left alone. In, in the mall at night and he'd secreted away um, a crate of these Alcopops and had just drunk them while he was mopping up, drinking them and pissing into his own bucket and dancing to some... That was the beautiful touch. It was the elegance of the dance. He, he was dancing. his mop around He was dancing with his mop covered in piss, whatever. <laughs> and, you know, the lovely thing about this, you know, it's great to hear these stories as well from mall security staff as well. You know, whether they emblazon them, embroider them or not, I don't know or particularly care but you know, um, the guy that told me he said, you know, the funny thing was I remember, he used to be in you know, 8.30 sharp in the morning you know, straight after night shift if we called him in and um, he was always on time and uh, I remember um, he called in one day to work and he said I'm going to be 15 minutes late and uh, he said, why? and he said, I'm being evicted <laughs> 15 minutes late in the day yeah. so the upside of that was when they tried to find him he was gone um, anyway I just I just find it a very moving little story of like a, it was utterly a, a, beautiful I thought, a, downtrodden a, a, man's yeah. revenge, revenge. A, a, a very secret man who has all this uh, I don't know let's face it opulence in many ways around him and this is his little quite uh, poetic revenge which is great uh, you think this now you've done Tales from the Mall that you've you've done that and um, you you move on to some is it a one off in a sense? Not at all. It's 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 a it's like a working methodology. Um, really, it's really become a kind of uh, that I've got now. idea. It's, it's it's like a philosophy of doing stuff, which is just that I will not I will not write a book. 
um, and think about you know getting the book done what I have to do is, is become consumed by uh, a project mm-hmm. which is invo- which involves a lot of learning yeah and I'll generate a lot of material which is just the, le- the learning itself and the mm-hmm. honing down of that learning that then become whether that becomes a book or a video or whatever that's part of the cultural output mm-hmm. so just basically to think about um, writing as a project rather than a product yeah um, that's the main thing I'm going to I'm going to continue with that so this isn't a case of you it, it saying well I, I think that the book as a product or the 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 old way of selling or publishing books is just not going to work therefore I'm going to look for a different way of doing it it just so happens this is the way you want to do it you've done you know three novels and a, a book of short stories and you say well I've done that I don't you know I, I'm not just not interested in that anymore or um, is it, it basically is it an artistic decision or is it a kind of a um, one which you feel has to be done um, I wouldn't necessarily advocate it for other people, but um, it's certainly one that, that I find creatively nourishing. Mm. Um, I think, um, you know, I've been, I've been really inspired by a bunch of people who do similar things in other media. Adam Curtis, for example, with, mm-hmm. his, with his incredible documentaries. He now does these great blogs. His blogs are now a way to do a bit like what I was doing with Mal. So yeah. weekly or every bi-weekly he posts his research and all these incredible archival BBC clips, little bits of essays. He's just documenting the process of his own discovery of the things that, that he's working through, which are which are political things, mm-hmm. uh, things about the construction of the self. You know, he he did that fantastic series called series called The Century of the Self. Mm-hmm. Um, I, um, I think this is mostly just a, a way to a way to. Um, to stop worrying about, am I going to make a living as a novelist? Yeah. And just to think, well, actually, making a living as a novelist is kind of crass and it might be out of date anyway. Yeah. yeah. And to remain socially active and 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 uh, emotionally engaged with the world and, and, and creatively happy through a process of learning and research and investigation and a wee bit of writing, yeah. which is just creative stuff. Sure. Um, that that seems like a really wholesome way to live um, and, and, and a good use of the time I've got left. So how do you think that you'll get the, this out there, if you like? Will it be through websites, apps? I mean, if you say that, that uh, social sites um, are not going to particularly benefit... Um, how do you think people are going to? I suppose how are people going to consume um, a books and music in the future? Is it there already? Is it the online version? Is it is it Amazon or is there going to be? Well, I'm certainly not going to give all my stuff away for free. Yeah, I can't bear that. Yeah, it's absolutely demoralising. Yeah, I think we I have. Think it's a, there's an idea of self worth and self respect yeah. tied into that, without a doubt. Well, also, I don't think people take the stuff they get for free seriously. Yeah. There's a few examples kicking about just now. Mm-hmm. People have put their books out for free. Uh, writers yeah. have gained 700 new readers in a day for free, and then when they put the price back up to 4.99, they have zero sales. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so um, you know, that's not an effective working model. Um, 
I'm interested in working through different media which will pay me to do my stuff. Yeah. I think it's really crucial to do that. Mm -hmm. So that means working through television, working through, say, The Guardian. I've got an ongoing um, series of essays with, with The Guardian. Um, finding ways to get paid to continue the exploration is, is important. It's legitimating. And also, it, it kind of guarantees a kind of audience as well. Um, you know, I just I don't want to be one of these sad people who has to work a day job, yeah, um, and does my creativity in my spare time. Yeah, do you think that these um, areas such as online newspapers or television? I think it's interesting because you've obviously worked in TV yourself. How is that going to be affected? Will there be an idea that? People will be so used to getting things for free that they'll always be unwilling to, 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 to pay for anything. Well, I think a generation that's been raised on free stuff is going to hit a brick wall quite soon. What with the... See, there's one argument that runs that since we're in a cultural depre you know, a yeah. economic depression, then culture will have to be given away for free. Mm. I think that's bullshit. No, I, don't I think that it's absolutely bullshit. I think yeah. you have to defend the culture industries. Uh, because culture industries are being preyed upon by yeah. tech industries just now. So I think the effective places at the moment, and people might disagree with me on this, I'll give you just a couple of examples. Um, for, for example, this culture, culture tax. Yeah. Culture tax is something like the BBC, which raises billions every year and mm -hmm. produces stuff and has to pay people according to union standards. Yeah. There is paywall whether that's Sky TV or Rupert Murdoch's newspapers. Mm -hmm. You know, Rupert Murdoch's newspapers for an article pay four times more than The Guardian, for example. Right. Um, paywalls will be the future because and even The Guardian is going to have to stick up a yeah. paywall eventually. Because when, when, when The Times in particular put up a paywall, people thought, well, nobody's going to do it. But I don't know the figures. Mm, I think um, it was between 48 and 60% of their following just fell off straight away. Mm -hmm. But they were able to monetize those who did um, actually pay for what they've got and they've consolidated a strong base now where, where they're in a better place than someone like The Guardian yeah. who's giving stuff away for free. Yeah. Um, subscriber base, you know, um, and also charitable giving. If you look in terms of America at NPR, National Public Radio, mm -hmm. they have... Um, they have charitable drives which are just about paying for high-end cultural production. This American Life um, is, a, is a classic example of you know socially important Voice of America broadcasting happens once every week. High-quality broadcasting. It's not paid for by a culture tax or a paywall, but it's just paid for by the well-wishing of the middle classes who want to keep culture alive. Sure. That's another solution but we have Will to that happen here a kind of patriotism of, of the arts uh, go back to that idea that uh, it will only be a, a, a middle class uh, audience that will say well yes we like what you do therefore here i would hate to think that we did have to go back to that yeah um but we're going to hit the brick wall very soon when we realize that we're not creating cultural stuff that lasts mm -hmm. and also when we're seeing a, a generation of people giving stuff of stuff away for free being wiped out. The bad side might be that after people have given away their work for two or three years, be it journalism, music, books, 
that there's another bunch of kids who'll come in and do exactly the same thing. Yeah. You know, and the whole thing will replicate again and no one will learn the lessons at all. And this could go on indefinitely. Mm. But I think that there is general generational knowledge and that people actually do learn from their mistakes. And I think we are moving to a point where we're, we're, we're realising that, uh, that we're going to have to start paying for culture if culture is going to be any good. I mean, one of the classic examples I see of the crisis in culture is, is the sheer repetition that's involved in culture. Yeah. I don't think we're producing anything new in music, right? for example. Um, we, we've entered the X-factorization of everything where we're reproducing the music from the 60s, 70s, yeah. 80s and 90s really again and again and again. Also in cinema, um, prequels, sequels and remakes were, mm-hmm. were, were the top 10 movies of last year. We're Comic at, book adaptations, book adaptations. Yeah, yeah I know. Yeah. Once you go on to the Avengers, which has got eight superheroes in it, you know, then the only thing you can do is a mashup, you know? Mm-hmm. So you have to, and we, you know, the Avengers meets uh, whatever, Lord of the Rings. Yeah, Batman. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, the mashup is one of the most redundant cultural forms in as much as it's simply just taking what was there already and making hybrids. You got this happening in novels just mm-hmm. now. Um, um, now, what was that one? It was Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Zombies, yeah, huge sellers apparently. And we've got this this one in the cinema just now, which is Abraham Lincoln Vampire, Vampire Killer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Snow White and the Huntsman. Mm-hmm. Um, all it's all and and verses. Yeah, um, it's really it's cultural end times. It is the end of day. I mean, a, you know, end of history culturally in a yeah. sense because we just as you, we, we keep harking back and, and not even harking back that far I mean it, it's well it's, I mean one of the reasons we do that is because we're running out of money mm. because we can't monetize culture it's dead easy to promote something that's already famous yeah. a series of Marvel comics to try to promote something brand new that's got no cult following already is a lot more expensive mm-hmm. so it's it, you know it's it, in a sense it's a product of of the economic depression yeah it's the it's the cultural void of just we'll just have to keep reprocessing reprocessing the same stuff and hope that no one notices or that no one really cares. And it's been going on for what it's probably six or seven years. Yeah, probably, yeah, yeah. Probably I remember um, the first time when when the mashups in music and as usual it probably started in music, and you could see some of it was very artistic, but others it was just literally throw, yeah. it, throw it against the wall and see what happened. Well, the early stuff was really good. I remember mm. there was a really good mashup um, which was Pink Floyd meets the Bee Gees. And it, it was it was we don't need no education mixed with another brick in the wall, <laughs> and so there was a kind of correspondence of meaning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Things. But but now you've got like a fourth generation mashups, you know. So you've got Madonna mashed with Pink Floyd, mashed yeah. with Bee Gees, mashed with Dvorak, mashed with Lord of the Rings soundtrack. Um, <laughs> um, and just like it's absolute it. nothingness. Kind of yeah. they play at Nicker arguments to get them to leave. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Sonic warfare. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a very good example. It's not a very good um, uh, sort of manifesto for for capitalism, is it? You know, you know the mashup, the eighth generation mashup. But that's but that's where we've got to. Well, to to defend the the old novel slightly, then would you say that? The novel is a place where people are still trying to write new uh, narratives, new stories. There are, I mean, people look to, to novels to get, or do you think that same thing is happening there? I think the novel is saturated with nostalgia. Yeah, that's interesting. At the moment, I don't think we're seeing novels really which which 
managed to escape from the 19th century moralism. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, that's Jonathan Franzen. Mm -hmm. he, he writes about the world as if it's a village. Now I can explain on that, my philosophy yeah, of, sure. of, of the novel as a village. Yes. Mm. Um, well, the idea of the village, which is basically where the novel started, yeah. was in a time before um, cars and before trains. So the furthest you could travel was, th you know, 31 miles mm -hmm. in a day on a horse, whatever. So the great early novels of the 19th, 20th century yeah. were based on this idea that you can't escape from the moral consequences of your acts. Yeah. Yeah. You can't run away. You can't leave the country. You can't bugger off. You can't have a second secret identity on, on the internet. Everyone knows who you are. Yeah. Everyone knows you were a murderer. Mm -hmm. Everyone knows you committed adultery. So the moral fabric of the novel is based on on how far you can travel in a day by a horse. Yeah. It's, it's based on the village, you know? And uh, then, of course, we had modernism, which, mm -hmm. which was the explosion of the train, the aircraft, yeah. the, the fragmentation of the self, all the rest of it. Now we seem to be back in this nostalgia for the village. It's a global village, if you well, like. <laughs> the global village. Uh, um, a classic example of this is, is a novel called Union Atlantic by Adam Hazlitt, who, right. won, who, who won the Pulitzer Prize for his first book of short stories. Um, Jonathan Franzen is a big fan. Anyway, so in Union Atlantic, you have a Wall Street trader who sinks Wall Street. You have the head of the Federal Reserve. You have a hippie woman mm -hmm. in her 60s who's fighting a land battle um, for uh, holding onto her property. And you've got an Afghan, uh, sorry, um, a soldier who goes to Afghanistan and creates a war atrocity. And they all live in the same village. It just seems to me completely absurd. <laughs> Why not just write about the world? Well, I suppose because the novel can't contain yeah. writing about the whole world mm. in that way. It so has to make yeah, that, it has yeah. to make moral it has to make moral judgments on people's actions. The fact is we can live in the modern world without ever knowing the consequences of our oh, actions. Yeah. So the novel's kind of struggling. But the novel always always had to have that. It always had to have certain characters that you would tick off. As you say, the village, yeah. you would have the village idiot, you would have the gossip, you would have the vicar, you normally are, if it's a Scottish novel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and they would all have to, to, to you know, to, to you get have, You're right. You would have the transgressor against the world of convention. Exactly. That was generally what yeah. the story of the novel so, was. What happens when you break social taboos. Exactly. But, but, so Walter Scott got there and then just, yeah. you know, did it and sent folk to London and back on their horse, as you say. Um, but in a global sense, you're right, it doesn't make sense anymore to say that because although yeah. there are still small communities, it makes it much more difficult to write in terms of... I think uh, this is why, why so many contemporary writers write about the past, why there's been a real return of the historic book, yeah. the, the reinvention of the past, like at Wolf Hall, etc. Mm -hmm. um, we want a more morally simple universe. We want the village. Yeah. We want to go back to the village. So I think the novel actually, I'm not sure that it's the best form to be dealing with our contemporary condition. I think we've become fragmented. We have information coming in all ends of our lives, invading us, the internet, messing with our sexuality, our notion of choice. We've got, you know, internet dating, anonymity, We've got short-term jobs. We've got movement around the country to try and find a job. Mm -hmm. We haven't got a village. Yeah. Um, so basically, um, I think we may be 
causally tied to our time and we might actually have to just say well the novel's not the best vehicle um, yeah. for for expressing that um, and why should we think that the novel can live forever and all eternity yeah. um, it, it performed a specific function and there are some very good things about the novel but it, I think you might be right um, purely because when I read a lot of books that now and there is there's some wonderful use of words and it's very aesthetic and poetic and all of those things but often about either things that have been said before or things that you know are from from the past there doesn't seem to be many writers dealing in fiction with contemporary uh, concerns well, it's very hard to do that though because of the degree of social fragmentation yeah. that we that we experience um you know, there is a break in the in the line of causality, cause and effect. Um, that's part of our great modern alienation, is that we can get away with doing stuff all the time which has no repercussions, whether that's, you know, having an affair online or, you know, secretly compulsively shopping or ripping off a bank for, you know, you know, eight hundred million pounds. That's right. And um, you could live a destructive life without ever leaving your house. As long you know, as yeah. long as Tesco delivers your alcohol. Yeah. You know, you've got gambling, well, you've got you pornography, know, you've got you know And so much so much activity which we invest meaning in is happens in the virtual world. Mm. For example, if you're if you're an internet troll, you can be inspiring people to kill themselves, you know, by you know, by pursuing them online, by just absolutely hitting them with your negativity all the time. Entire fascinated by this are, sorry. sorry, entire lives are consumed by virtual activity, mm. um, which no one in the village knows about. Yeah, I am fascinated by the idea that there are people who think that because they are anonymous or because it is done online, then you know all sorts of levels of abuse are absolutely acceptable. It seems to me it's a it's maybe a, something to talk about for another time. But yes. it, it, you know that that um, there's almost a dehumanisation because if. If I can say something to you online, which I would never say to your face, then there is something, yeah. you know, wrong about that kind of sense. Yeah, well, it, I'm absolutely fascinated by this unforeseen consequences of what the, what the internet yeah. does to us. Um, having said that, as someone who was an internet swinger, an internet yeah. compulsive dater, um, um, and I'm amazed actually at how all that human interaction on an intimate level has had really no effect on anyone. No. And, um, you know, a hundred years ago in the land of the novel in the village, to have gone on a hundred dates in a year would have been, um, you know, you've been burned at the stake. <laughs> <laughs> you would have, really have, have been locked in jail. And even, you know, when, uh, when did you write Swung? About 2007? It was about that, yeah. yeah. yeah so yeah. even that, even that, whatever it is, five yeah. years, you know, huge changes in... in, in, in well, we were talking about that with the, with the uh, film production company who've, who've almost got the film up off the ground because yeah. I was saying, um, we were just laughing about this the other day, I was saying that when the book came out, it was, it, people found it was shocking. Yeah. And now, you know, you've got Grindr, you know, which is an app which allows, you know, gay men who are in close proximity to, you know, swap information and go for a quick shag somewhere. And they're, they're going to make one for, uh, you know, bisexuals, bi-curious, and, and, and uh, I think hets as well, which is called Blender. Grinder, it's such an awful... Oh. I think Blender's quite good, though. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's Blender's like great. Yeah, the yeah. bisexual <laughs> Blender. 
Well, let's finish off. Hold on, hold on. Okay, okay. I've got a good one, which is right. that, which is that people who've been bad can get back together with their partners with an app called Mender. Have <laughs> <laughs> you made that up? I just did. <laughs> <laughs> quick, quick, write that down. There's an app for that. Let's finish off talking about sex then, because you're saying that when Swung came out, uh, people thought it was shocking, and um, I've recently reread uh, Bunkerman. Yes. Uh, it was a tremendous book and again people went oh this is just a horrible uh, uh, book and, and but it seemed to me that uh, both the books did that very um, rare thing in, in Scottish writing anyway they took sex seriously because it seemed to me that it, it was almost uh, even in, in very fine writers like Irvin Welsh or Alan Warner it was seen as either voyeuristic or a comical or shocking whereas actually the most shocking thing of all in a way was to say well actually this is how some people live their lives yeah um well I think that was just because I was just trying to deal with the fact that um with the kind of reality of the lives of people around me yeah um where sex had become I think you know I think sex in the 90s into the 2000s, people in my generation were really looking for something to make sense of their lives. Mm. You know, I think in a political sense, they felt very disenfranchised. In a work sense, they didn't have long-term jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, they were maybe married and then divorced and quite know what they were doing. And there was a real kind of desire to find meaning through sex. Mm-hmm. Also, I think my generation, Generation X, identity politics was a big thing. Yeah. We remember... Um, you know, gay rights activism, um, even bondage and S and M activism. Yeah. I remember and there was an acceptability of, of alternative lifestyles that hadn't happened to people. Yeah, no. I, in fact, I remember being young and 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 being rather pretentious and and going along to a bondage and S and M demonstration uh, after. I was saying, they weren't chaining themselves to the rail. <laughs> <laughs> <There you go. laughs> yes, you're getting too, you're getting too much pleasure from this, please. Um, no, but one of the one of the banners was um, that someone was touting was was give us back our chains. <laughs> it was a nice inversion of the of the whole uh, idea of, of of demonstrating in the first place. Um, so anyway, I think I think we probably overdiagnosed our sense of worth in our sexuality, and I think um, Swung is really just a book about Gen X, um, yeah. um, coming to terms with the fact that sex isn't the answer to everything, and that we tend to to overinvest meaning in it. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, Generation Y have got very different ideas about sex than we did yeah. I think because most of them still live with their parents they don't really get much uh, um, <laughs> and there's a lot of free stuff <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of free stuff as you say that uh, I know and they're obsessed with pornography and they love burlesque and they they tend to mediate their sexual exchanges through social media so their friends choose who their partners are all that kind of stuff for us Gen X it was all about it was all about dark transgression and, the, <laughs> the, and dark the, alleys and, and, and just a total secret life that might redeem you from the shit the job shit job that you had to do um, of course we were wrong but um, <laughs> of course we're right. <laughs> we, we always are more likely to get robbed in the dark alley indeed don't go into dark alleys especially wearing bondage gear um, so um no, you know, there was a series of three books which were really about, you know, how my generation uh, mm. 
uh, people I knew know and me myself tried to find an answer to our, our, our problems through sex. And that in itself was a consequence of the sexual revolution which came before us. Um, and I think that period right. is, I think that period is over now. And there was a lot of films of the time, thinking sexualized videotape, um, yeah. um, a in the company of men. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that were yeah, doing yeah. just that thing. Yeah. And it's, it, I, you don't see those kind of films, and unfortunately, because yeah. they were very interesting. But you know, I think that's the perfect place to round off tonight. Uh, Ewan, thanks very much for coming up and doing oh, this. Sorry. Really appreciate Wonderful. it. Wonderful. Thank you. And uh, we will see you with someone new next time round. Cheers.